Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 1. When John first recounted the basis of John the Baptist's ministry, he told the reader, the ones who were reading it in the first audience and us, that John's witness was to the light. In verses 6 through 8, John the writer identifies John the Baptist and his mission with these words. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not that light, but came to bear witness about the light. John the Baptist's life purpose could be summed up by saying, John existed to point to the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His greatest desire is that all who hear Him might believe. This is a tremendous statement about the the purpose of a man's life. Much to the chagrin of those who have championed many purposes for life, this is the only purpose for a man's life. That He be a reflection, a display, a witness to the light of the glory of God in the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. It's the only purpose. It is the only purpose. Can we say that it is our purpose? Can you say that is your purpose? Can you say that is Grace Fellowship's purpose? If I passed away today, could they say Carlton lived to the point to point to the glory of the to the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? John the Baptist had one purpose. Is that our one purpose? That all who hear us might believe in Jesus Christ, the true light that lights the world. How do we know that his one purpose was fulfilled? He had a purpose. His purpose was the point to the light that all might believe through him. But how do we know he accomplished it? Because the divinely inspired writer gives us the narrative immediately in this first chapter of those who followed him believing. John the Baptist's purpose was fulfilled. Look in John 1, 35 through 51. And for time's sake, we will not read the passage, but we will go through it together. We can be confident that John's purpose was fulfilled. And if this is your purpose, if this is your one aim, that the glory of God be reflected through your life to those you live with and around, even in your home, in your neighborhood, in your place of business, in your realm of influence, even to the whole world, If this is your one purpose, I can say by the authority of God's Word, God will fulfill that purpose in you. I don't know about all other purposes. Maybe, maybe not. But I do know about this one. And God will do it if you will make it your faithful aim. And you will make it your one purpose in all of life. Look what it says in verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of His disciples and He looked at Jesus. The the Greek says He gazed at Him. He fixed His eyes on Jesus. 
Jesus was coming back from 40 days and 40 nights of wilderness journey. This is the point at which Jesus is returning from the temptation of Satan. This is the point at which He has not eaten or drunk anything for 40 days and 40 nights. A complete and utter fast. He and Moses, the only two men to ever do this, and it was done by the power of God. And so He comes walking up. Can you imagine if Moses' face shone with the glory of God? How must Christ have shown with the glory of His Father? And John fixes his eyes on Him. He didn't just glance at Him. He was awestruck by Jesus Christ to the point that His life purpose bubbles out. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And His purpose is fulfilled. Look what happens. His purpose, show the light that what? All who hear Him might believe. And what happened? The two disciples who heard Him say this followed Jesus. He didn't beg them. He didn't plead with them. He didn't dupe them or trick them. He gazed at Jesus Christ, the light. And he bore witness to that light which was shining so brightly in the face of Christ. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And his disciples immediately gave themselves to him. I want us to look at this narrative passage and draw out some simple truths about evangelism in real life. Evangelism should start close to home. We see that in this text. Evangelism starts close to home, not far away. Jesus called Andrew and I believe John to follow him. These are the two disciples that were with John the Baptist. I know John's name is not inserted in the text, but John never inserts his own name in the text of his writing. He simply says, maybe the beloved one, or he might say like he does here, another disciple But notice the eyewitness facts that he gives. He gives the time of day that it was. He gives the type of look that John the Baptist set on Jesus. These are eyewitness report facts, not distant related facts through some other man's witness. I believe Andrew and John were called here by Jesus. These men went after Jesus without any persuasion from John or Jesus. It's clear to me that John the Baptist had been telling his followers, the Lamb of God is coming, and when He comes, I will tell you clearly who He is. When I tell you who He is, you need to follow Him. John the Baptist had not been making much of himself. He had been making making much of the Lamb of God. And he clearly told them, when He comes, I will tell you. When I tell you, forget me, follow Him. That's implied. They did it immediately without any coaxing or arm twisting. John the Baptist had been pointing to the light his entire ministry. He was not in the business of building little kingdoms of followers for himself. Instead, he was about pointing to the Messiah who was building a kingdom 
and who they would be a part of his kingdom, not John's kingdom. He had three, three examples that he gives us here of witness. Don't attract attention to yourself. You want to share the gospel? Don't attract attention to yourself. Be as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 when he said we are as clay pots, earthen vessels. Now they had lots of vessels in the Hebrew home. They had adorned vessels which sat out like vases where they had probably beautiful decoration. And they had earthen vessels. Not to be crude. They were bedside pots. This is where you went when there was no indoor plumbing. So you didn't have to walk outside in the night. Paul says, I am an earthen vessel. Why am I an earthen vessel? Because it's not about me. And if I'm going to share the gospel with you, it's not about me. It's about Him. The last thing I want to do if I want to be a good witness to the light is to draw attention away from the light to me. So that's the first thing we can observe in John's witnessing technique in his program of sharing the gospel. Open your mouth and tell others about Jesus Christ. You want to deflect praise and attention and you want to open your mouth about one subject. As John MacArthur has said, and I wish I was this committed and maybe by the time I'm his age, I will be this committed. He says, I don't know a lot about many things. All I know is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when they asked me to come on to the Larry King live show, when Larry asked me, when he called me and he asked me, I said, only will I come if you let me speak on one subject. You know the subject? The gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, I'm not there to pontificate about world affairs, politics, local problems, world problems, all those things other people can talk about. I don't know anything about those things much. All I know much about is Jesus Christ. And so John was a lot like this. I don't want attention. I want to open my mouth and speak about Jesus Christ. I want the world to hear it through me. And then finally, his one motivation and our one motivation should be that those who hear us believe in Jesus Christ. That's the only reason he was existing on the earth. was so that they might believe in Jesus. If it weren't for that, he would say, my life is not worth living. Second, I want you to notice that how Jesus questions their true intentions. In verse 38, when they come to Him, Jesus, seeing them follow, says, What are you seeking? Notice He didn't say, Who are you seeking? He said, What are you seeking? There are many people coming after Jesus Christ today in the name of some prophet, in the name of some better life, in the name of health and wealth, in the name of all sorts of things. Eternal life, heaven, riches, a good family, peace on earth. There's lots of reasons to come after Jesus. Jesus wants to know, what are you seeking when you come after me? It's not enough that you come after Jesus. You must come after Him and Him alone. That shocks some of you. Hey, you say, how do you know? Your face. Your face said it all. said a thousand words. We are not to come after Jesus Christ for anything else. Save Him and Him alone. Not heaven, not pleasure, not wealth, not health, not a promotion, not a good family, 
not good relationships with our neighbors, not success, not anything else, not eternal life. Forget it. If Jesus is not your aim, He is asking you today, what are you seeking? That's all He wants to know. There will be many in that day who will stand before Him and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in Your name and we cast out demons in Your name and we did miracles in Your name. And He will say, depart from Me, for I never knew You. Do not be deceived by our American trivialized gospel which tells you you're safe if you want heaven. You're not safe if you want heaven. Any sane person wants heaven versus hell. Any atheist standing in front of me today, if I could convince him there was an eternal life, he would want it, not death. So don't put confidence in the fact that you want to go to heaven. Good. But what are you seeking? What are you seeking? That is the question. That is what Jesus asked. Not who, but what. The motivation is what Jesus is concerned with. Many people seek Him, as I said, even for forgiveness, but Jesus will only accept us who seek Him for Him. It's not that we come to Jesus having many things. It's that we come having nothing, seeking Him and Him alone. Finally, notice that this point that Jesus issues a simple challenge to Andrew and John. What are you seeking? They are not avoiding the question. They say, where are you staying? They are confessing, there's not enough time on the roadside, Lord. We're going to need to go sit down with you and listen. You're going to have to teach us. You're going to have to show us. That's what they're saying. They don't miss the point. They get the point. We need more time. This is a big decision. This isn't something you do in a five-minute little spat about an emotion. This is our lives. If you're not the Messiah, we don't want to follow you. If you are, we will. We believe, John, but we need to hear it from you. And so they say, where are you staying? We want to go. Jesus has gotten to them at the very beginning. He's gripped them with the truth. And they say, and He says to them, come and you will see. This is simple. Come and you will see. Simple but profound. You cannot be saved at a distance. You must come and see. You cannot be saved through another man's faith. You must come to Jesus. And you must see Him as your only hope. It's not enough for your parents to see it. It's not enough for some church man to see it for you, some Sunday school teacher. Whatever he may be, it's not enough. When Jesus asked them who they are seeking, they reply, Rabbi, which means teacher. That's a title of respect and honor. Where are you staying? And His clear and simple response is, come and see. And they went and they saw Clearly that He is the promised one. And it totally changed their life. How do I know it changed their life? Because Andrew immediately went and told his brother about Jesus. Look in verses 40 through 42. No one knows what Jesus told them that first night they were together. But what 
we do know is that based on that night, based on his words to them that night, Andrew immediately got up in the morning and found his brother. And he said, the Messiah is here. It reminds me of the brothers who overtook, or Christ overtook them in Luke. Uh, at the end of Luke, uh, passage just came to my mind, so don't hold me to the reference. At the end of Luke, after his resurrection, he overtakes the brothers on the road to Emmaus, and he asks them what the problem is. They're mourning, you know. He says, what are you talking about? And they say, haven't you heard? Where have you been? The whole world knows Jesus the one we love, the one we cared so much for, is dead and he's been buried. And Jesus says that statement that, that uh, uh, Aaron so rightly pointed out, have you not heard the Scriptures? And this is what you must believe. And he began to expound to them himself from the Old Testament. He showed himself to them from the Old Testament and their eyes began to fade where they could see a little bit. Then at the table, he breaks bread and blesses it, and that common blessing that he must have done over and over and over again was so familiar that the scales fell off and they say, Aha! And their response, Did our hearts not burn when he spoke to us on the road? And I believe Andrew and John got a similar spiel the night they were with him from the Old Testament. I am the Messiah. This is why I fulfill this prophecy and that one and this one. It's all about me. And their hearts burned. As Jeremiah said, I have a message burning in my bones. It must be told. And Andrew leaves immediately to tell it. And the first place he goes is not a foreign country. It's not even his neighbor's house. It's not his associates at work. It's his brother. We excuse ourselves with our family, don't we? It's hard. It's not easy. They won't believe us. They know us too well. Then stop Andrew. And I tell you, if you had the cure to AIDS, some terrible disease, you think it up, and your loved one was suffering, you would run when you had the cure. You would run to them, not to the world. You would not think about making a dollar. You would think about my brother has an opportunity to live. And this is the, what he had just received. The burning in his bones was, the Messiah is here. I don't want my brother to miss it. And he goes to get Simon, his brother. And so, evangelism starts with those we love. Andrew is an interesting man. John writes of him three times in the Gospel, including this one. Every time he's bringing someone to Jesus. Don't know anything else about him. There's no great spill on him in Acts. He's kind of lost after the Gospels. Three times he's mentioned. All three times John mentions him. He's bringing somebody to Jesus. In John chapter 6, verses 8 through 9, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? He brought the boy to Jesus. Again, I think we misunderstand his statement here. It's not that lack of faith, it's faith. Would you have brought a boy with five loaves and two fish to Jesus to feed 5,000 men plus their wives and children? I wouldn't. I would have been the one saying, Son, just eat your lunch. At least you'll be filled. The rest of us are going to starve. Andrew said, There's a problem. There's a solution. And I'm taking this boy to Jesus. 
What are these among so many? Jesus said, watch and see. And he blessed them and he fed them. But they came because of Andrew. That's the second time we hear him. The third time we hear of Andrew is in John chapter 12, 20 through 22. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip did what? He went and told the evangelist. He went and told Andrew. He didn't take him to Peter, who would have probably scoffed and said, They're not Jewish, who gives a rip? Leave them on the side. He went to Andrew, the one who had the pattern of bringing people to Jesus. And Andrew and Philip brought them to Jesus, the Scripture says. Three times in John. All three times he's bringing others to Christ. There's very little known about Andrew. He's so insignificant that he's introduced often as Simon Peter's brother. How would you like that? That's so-and-so. In case you don't know who he is, though he's been with us all three years of our journeys, that's Simon Peter's brother. Oh, oh yeah, that's Andrew. He's that back dweller. He's always back there in the background. But he seems to mirror John the Baptist's calls in life, doesn't he? And so he fits in our text. I have one purpose. Take them to Jesus Christ. And I took them to Jesus Christ. That's all you need to know about the man. His witness is much greater than any of ours because He was faithful. He was faithful to take them to Jesus. What a testimony. Oh, that the world would know nothing of us except that we took people to Jesus. Evangelism is not a program. Evangelism is not dressing in a white suit with white shoes, a red tie, and some slick back hairdo. Evangelism is not only handing out some tracts in hopes that someone will be twisted into belief. Evangelism is not a sales pitch. Evangelism is taking people to Jesus that we would be known as people who in every situation run to take people to Jesus. Andrew had no training. He had not walked with Christ for a long time. He just knew that the Christ had come and that his brother needed to come to Jesus. So what is our excuse? He knew less about Jesus than we do at this point. And yet he immediately began to go and reach others for Christ. What a testimony. Andrew's brother was Simon. John simply says in 42 that he brought him to Jesus. And in this verse we get a glimpse into the omniscience of Jesus Christ when he says, So you are Simon, the son of John. He wasn't introduced, by the way. He just said it when he walked up. You're Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus not only saw Simon as the man he was on that day, but he saw him as the rock that he would make him in the future. So he gave him a new name. A nickname, we might call it. The Rock. Masculine name. I like it. The Rock. In a day when names meant something, Jesus gave him a name. And his name was Cephas, the rock. John MacArthur has written a fabulous book about portraits of the pictures of twelve ordinary men. This is what he said about Simon's name. But notice that the Lord gave him another name. Luke introduces him this way. Simon, whom he also named Peter. Luke's choice of words here is important. Jesus didn't merely give him a new name to replace the old one. He also named him Peter. 
This disciple was known sometimes as Simon, sometimes as Peter, and sometimes as Simon Peter. Now, the use of that is very significant. I want to paraphrase and bring it down for you. Simon was his reference when he was dealing with worldly affairs, his possessions. Luke 5, uh, verse 3 says that they were uh, on the boat of Simon. In, uh, later on in the text, it, it says that they went to Simon in Mark chapter 1, 29. It said they went to Simon's house in Mark 1, 30. Simon's wife's mother, all worldly possessions and relationships. Simon. So one, one usage of the word Simon or the name Simon is that he was a wor- man of the world. He had interest there. A second use of the t- title Simon, very significantly used by Jesus often, is in rebuke. When he wants to rebuke a characteristic of Simon Peter, he calls him Simon. He does this in, uh, you know, in many texts. But we see that in uh, Luke 5, verse 8. He says to him, Simon, cast your nets on the other side. Talking about, and Simon gives him this little excuse. Well, we've been fishing all night, Lord. You think we're going to catch them just because you said put the net down? Notice he led out with the name Simon, not Peter, not Simon Peter, just Simon. And then they got a great haul, and the Bible says he fell at his feet. Simon Peter fell at his feet and cried out that he was the Christ. He came to be chastised by this name. It's, MacArthur says it's as if when he heard Jesus say Simon, he just kind of cringed. Like, I did it again. What did I do this time? It's like your mama hollering your name with your middle name. You know, uh-oh, I've messed up again. Interestingly, the last time we hear the name Simon is in John 21 when Jesus restores him to the ministry of the gospel. And he questions him three times as Simon. And in the end, he's called Peter. And it is Peter in the book of Acts who preaches at Pentecost, not Simon. And not Simon Peter. It is Peter. The record of the Bible says that he was a rock. All the way through his life, he was a rock after Christ changed him. It's Peter who preaches at Pentecost. It's Peter who leads the church at Jerusalem. It's Peter who writes to those scattered by persecution. Interestingly enough, he calls himself Simon Peter. Probably the passage, uh, maybe like John, uh, Rod read, read out of Romans 7. He understood he was not fully reformed. He was not fully in the image of Christ yet. I'm still Simon Peter. But others give him this elevated title of Peter, the rock. Peter was no different than any other Christian. He struggled with living the life he was called by Jesus to live, but by the power of Jesus in him, he was the rock built on the chief cornerstone. The truth is that Simon was brought to Christ by his brother Andrew. Jesus changed him into Peter, the stone of the first church, and our faith is due to Christ using this man to build the church in Jerusalem. All of this was started by a little recognized brother who was willing to share Jesus with his family. Paul never refers to him as Simon. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, 
Some were baptized by Apollos and some by Cephas and some by Paul. Yet all of us are saved by Christ, he says. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, in his account of the gospel, he says he appeared to Cephas and then, or Peter and then to the other brothers. And lastly, to me. Why did Paul only know him as Peter? Because Christ had changed him significantly from Simon. And he had made him a stone. And so I want to ask you two questions from this text. Are you Simon or are you Peter? Only you know that. I can't tell you who you are. Only you and God know if He has changed you into a living stone that is being built up on the chief capstone into the living house of God. Only you know that. I don't. So I ask you, secondly, has the gospel so impacted you that now your one life purpose is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with every man starting at home and moving out. And sharing the gospel comes in all shapes and forms and fashions, sometimes unannounced, like when your three, four-year-old calls you as you're preparing for Sunday worship and says, Daddy, my goldfish is dead. Happened to me just today, first time. I had a choice. How will I instruct her on this? Her little heart is hurt. Her fish is dead. What will I say? I said, honey, remember, Daddy, we talk about death. Everybody dies, don't they? Uh-huh. Why do we die? She said, whether she understands or not, I do not know, but she knows the answer. Because Adam sinned. And so we all die. And how, how will we be delivered from this death? And she says, by Jesus. I said, one day we'll live in a land where goldfish don't die. More importantly, we'll live in a place where not just the creatures don't die, but where we don't die because of Him. It can be that simple. Sharing the gospel can be that simple. You don't need seminary training to look at everyday occurrences and make them events in the tapestry of God painting the gospel for those you love. So take them. I challenge you, take them. Do not miss the opportunity to be like Andrew and run them to Jesus. And they ask you questions you can't answer. Just simply say, I know Jesus. I can take you to Him. It's the best answer. Let's pray. Father, oh, what a day. And this is the day that you have made and our hearts rejoice in it. And we have seen great things today. We have seen you through prayer, through preaching, through your Lord's Supper, through songs. We have seen you. We have tasted you. 
We so often, Lord, run from the experience of our faith. Help us, Lord, not to run from the experience, but to make sure those experiences are simply based on the truth, the objective truth of Your Word. And then let the feelings and the emotions and the experience happen. I thank You You are not a cold and dead God, but You are alive And I thank you that you are alive to us most clearly and most visibly in your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we exalt him. We hold him up because he is highly lifted up by you. And I pray for these that have heard this word, that their hearts would be challenged if they're lost to see Jesus. To come and see. And if they are saved, that they would simply live a life to point people to the light, to open their mouth about the light, to make little of themselves and much of you. Lord, please help us to do this in real ways that are so profound. We trust you for salvation. It is not our work, it is yours. We are your messengers with your message for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us.